Well, some of you are familiar with the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. It's written by Bill Watterson. And in this one, he shows the little boy saying, I'm getting disillusioned with these new years. They don't seem very new at all. Each year is just like the old year. Here, another year has gone by and everything's still the same. There's still pollution and war and stupidity and greed. Things haven't changed. I say, what kind of future is this? I thought things were supposed to improve. I thought the future was supposed to be better. And Hobbes says, the problem with the future is that it just keeps turning into the present. Now, as we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 5, what we're going to see is that one of the ways to keep the future from turning into the present is to break free of some of the things from the past if they're not in line with what God wants us doing. I've chosen Luke chapter 5 today because in it what we find is the first of the parables in the book of Luke. Jesus told a number of parables and they're recorded in the different gospels. And today I want to begin a new series where we're going to be looking through Luke at some of the greatest stories that were ever told because we're going to be looking at the parables that Jesus told. Now, as we look at what a parable is, it comes from the Greek word parabole. This word means to represent or stand for something. Kind of a little loud here, Dan, if you might take me down. Um, The Greek word parabole means to represent or stand for something. And it was used to describe a story. It was a word picture that illustrated a truth or it taught a lesson. And as we look at Luke 5 in verses 36 through 39, this is what we read. And Jesus was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says the old is good enough. Now, before we go any further in talking about these specific parables, I think it would be helpful to look back at the context of chapter 5, because there we see what caused Jesus to tell these two parables. In the first part of Luke chapter 5, what we see is that the crowds are coming to hear Jesus speak. They're growing, they're listening to what Jesus is teaching. And beyond that, he does a couple of miracles. Now, this causes the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, to get upset. They were the ones that wanted people coming and listening to them and doing what they said. And so as the crowds are turning to Jesus, uh, it makes them upset. They get bent out of shape. And they begin to question, who is Jesus? And who is he? By what authority is he saying and doing these things? Now, Jesus gets further into trouble with them as... As he goes farther outside of their box, as you see in verses 27 through 28, there it says, after that, Jesus went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Now, in Jesus' day, as you probably know from studying the scriptures, tax collectors were not liked. Uh, It's not just Jesus' day. We don't really like him in our day either. Nobody likes giving their money to the government. But things were even worse back then because the government that was in power was a foreign government by the name of Rome. They were seen as an enemy occupying the land. And so a tax collector was thought of as a traitor because they were working for this foreign Gentile power. 
And beyond being thought of as traitors, they were many times cheaters. They were thieves as they would charge people extra and they could keep whatever they took above and beyond. And so they lived a lavish lifestyle while other people were suffering. So you can see why society shunned those who were like this man. But we see here that Jesus didn't just see what this man had been, but he saw what he could be. Jesus didn't just see what he had been, but he saw what he could be, just as he does with those of us today. And so in the account, he calls this man to come and follow him. Now, there's a parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew. There in chapter 9, Levi is called Matthew. Uh, This name Matthew means a gift of God, and it could be a situation where Saul's name was changed to Paul or where maybe it was a middle name or something. Whatever was the case, this is the same man. And later he not only becomes a follower of Christ as we see here, but he becomes one of the 12 disciples. As we look at this man from the world's perspective, people would say Levi had it all. He had money, he had a position of power, he had influence in in being able to buy and get things. And yet when he met Jesus, he realized how worthless it all was. And he walked away from what the world said he should pursue to pursue the Lord of life. Now, as we look at Levi coming to Christ here, I love what we see in the next verse. Because he's a brand new believer and having just met Jesus, he says, I want all of my friends, I want all my co-workers to meet Christ as well. So he throws a bash. Verse 29 says, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. Now, being a new believer, he didn't have the the rule book that says how you throw an evangelistic party, right? I mean, we're told there's a banquet, there's drinking, there's partying, all this is going on. And and the religious leaders, again, don't like what's happening. Look at verses 30 through through 35. It says, the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he said to the, and he said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days." I've shared with you before how I was a police officer when I worked my way through seminary. And as a cop on the streets of Dallas, you get called a lot of things. And uh, one of the nicknames that I had was preacher with a pistol. And so uh, people would call me that. Well, there was this church out in Gun Barrel City, if you're familiar with the area of uh, Dallas, about 50 miles southeast of Dallas is Cedar Creek Lake. And there's a, there's a small town on the shore of the lake there called Gun Barrel City. And somebody in this church heard about the preacher with the pistol. And they contacted me and they said, look, we're doing this tent revival over Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be big. It's going to be great. And, and we've got this, this guy by the name of Zigzag. He, he came out of this biker. He was this, this motorcycle biker. And his street name was Zigzag. Now, Zigzag are the rolling papers that people smoke marijuana in. I know being a good church crowd, nobody here knows that. <laughs> So I just thought I'd share that bit of information. Yeah, I know, Christians are forgiven, not perfect. 
So there was zigzag, and they said, we've got this biker that left his bong, and he switched from the switchblade to the Savior. And if we could have the preacher with the pistol, the cop talking about the cross, man, it would be great. Can you picture it? <clears throat> now, this was the late 80s, and, you know, so you can imagine the marketing that was done with these posters. And they put them up all over Gun Barrel City and all around the lake. You got the, the biker and his bong and the cop and the cross. Man, it's going to be great. Well, all of a sudden, this church starts getting these calls from the good Christians in the community. And not only were they getting the calls, but they found me, and they were calling me. And they were saying, what are you guys doing? Christians aren't supposed to be around those beer-drinking, weed-smoking heathens and all that. Y'all need to cancel this event. Kind of a little bit like the story we're reading here, isn't it? Why are you associating with those people? Why are you talking to those people? Y'all need to stop it. You need to cancel it. This is not good. Now, thankfully, that church followed through with the event, and we saw a lot of people come to Christ. But you know what happens sometimes as Christians is we say, we have our rule book, right? And this is the way we do church. And these are the people who belong in church. We look around and we see somebody who doesn't quite look like us. Maybe their hair's different. They, they dress differently. They have piercings. They have tattoos. They don't match our little Christian clique. And we begin to say, you know, those people shouldn't be here at our church. Friends, who belongs in our church? Sinners? We're all sinners. We're all sinners who have been forgiven by God. We may have different sins. We may have different backgrounds. But Jesus Christ said, I have come for those who need a physician, those who are sick. And, you know, the irony here is, is that the, the Pharisees were just as sick. They just didn't realize it or they didn't want to acknowledge it. You know, we're sick as well. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. And so we as Christians can look around and we can begin to say, you know, that person doesn't belong here or this one. Friends, this is exactly where they belong. If you look at somebody and you say, why are they here? They don't, they don't really, you know, look like they belong here. Don't you want them to hear about Jesus? Don't you want them to hear about how their life can be changed? And maybe they'll start to look like you. I didn't say we were perfect, did I? <laughs> and, you know, maybe we'll start to look a little like them as well. And we'll start to realize that there are people out there who have a real need for Jesus. The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders here, they didn't realize their real need because they were so caught up in their rules, their rituals. They had no time for a real relationship with God, which is kind of ironic again because what we see here is they're complaining about how Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. Do you remember what fasting was for? Fasting was a time that you set aside to, to fully devote spending time with God. You wouldn't eat, you wouldn't prepare meals, you wouldn't clean up after it. You could take that extra time and devote it fully to God. Now, in the Mosaic Law, there was only one time that the law said you had to fast, and that was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Later, we find a couple of additional days of fasting that were added to commemorate mournful events in the, the nation of Israel. But the Pharisees came along and they said, you know, you need to fast twice a week. 
And they chose the days that Moses met with God up on Mount Sinai because, you know, as Christians, we like to attach Bible verses to everything we do. And so they said, well, here's, here's why we should fast on the second and fifth days. And, and they, they said, everybody should do this. And as we look at who they are and how they fasted, you can look ahead to Luke chapter 18 because there in 18, chapter 18, verses 11 and 12, we see a Pharisee and a tax collector praying. And again, the contrast is, is unique. We won't read it all here, but in verses 11 through 12, this Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And on it goes. And in the passage, you see Jesus rebukes this guy. And he criticizes him not for what he was doing, but because of the way in which he was doing it. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, fasting was supposed to be this private time of devotion where you went away and you, you focused fully on God and you set aside your time. But what the Pharisee said is, we're so devoted, we're so righteous and holy, but the problem is nobody knows it because we're, we're kind of away when we're doing this. So they said, we need to let everybody know how devoted we are. And so what they did is they, they started coming out during these times of fasting. And, and people didn't notice so much, so they said, we've really got to let people know how much we're suffering for, for the sake, for, well, they didn't know Jesus is the Savior at the moment. We need to let everybody know how devoted we are to God. So they went to their fire pits, and they would take ash, and they'd rub it on their face so they looked really pale. And people would go, are you feeling okay? Oh, I'm not eating, you know, I'm fasting. And, and then they walked around with these long, mournful faces. And, you know, they normally wore these robes, but they said, we need to take those off and put on sackcloth, you know, this coarse, scratchy garment. Oh, it doesn't feel good. And everybody goes, oh, what, why are you mourning? You know, oh, well, I'm fasting, you know. And, and then they stuck in their cheeks so they'd look real hungry and their faces are ashen and they're walking around. Oh, you know, and Jesus, as he saw these guys doing this, this is what he says about them in Matthew chapter 6. And verses 16 through 18, Jesus says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in, by, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, that's the background behind the parables we're reading here. What happened is it was one of these days of fasting, apparently. And these guys are walking around, ashen face, you know, oh, woe is us. They're, they're, they're hungry. They're sucking in their cheeks. And they come around a corner, and there's this party going on. And they go, what's going on? And they look in the window, and they see all the food set out, this feast going on. And it's kind of hard to keep your cheeks sucked in when you're drooling, right? <laughs> so, oh, look at the food. Oh. And then they look up, and they see people are laughing. And they're having, no, you shouldn't be laughing. Be miserable like us. Misery loves company, right? And so they see Jesus in the middle of this, and they get mad. And they say, they say what is going on? You shouldn't be doing this. I love uh, Irma Bombeck. She's, she's home with the Lord now, but she wrote about a time that she was attending church. And the late Ar Irma Bombeck said she was sitting in one of the pews, and some of you have had this experience where there's a child in front of you, 
And the, the child, you know, after a while is kind of dancing around or stand. This kid gets up and is standing in the pew and turns around and starts smiling at everybody, making faces and smiling and having a good time. And the, the mother who's sitting there with her young daughter sees this. And, and, and she says to her, she says, stop doing that. Stop grinning. You're in church. And then she gives her a swat on her bottom. Now, the little girl immediately sits down, her lips quivering, tears are coming to her eyes, and her mother says, now that's better. <laughs> Irma said, you know, some people come to church looking like they just read the will of their rich aunt, only to learn that she left everything to her pet hamster. <laughs> Brothers and sisters in Christ, following God doesn't mean you have to be miserable. It doesn't mean you give up everything that you enjoy. That we're to look more like the cover of the book of Lamentations. That's not what following Jesus is about. There are those who mistakenly think that that is what being a believer is. That's what these Pharisees were doing. But I want to remind you that in John 10.10, Jesus said this to us. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You know, I'm not promoting the bogus health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine that life is a party and and you're to be overwhelmingly blessed. Life is hard at times. There are hard things that happen. But what we need to realize is God wants us to understand that in this life, we can have joy. He wants us to have joy. And beyond this life is when the real joy comes. For those of us who know Jesus is our Savior. If you're here today and you're afraid to follow Jesus because most of the Christ followers you know are unhappy or legalistic and you're afraid that if you become a Christian that that's how you have to live your life, I want you to know the opposite is true. Jesus wants you to have life. And he wants you to have it abundantly. He wants us to enjoy his gift of life and ultimately the gift of eternal life. Jesus tells the leaders in our passage, there are times for mourning and there are times for joy. And he says in verses 34 through 35, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom, that's Jesus, fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? In verse 34 here, he uses a Greek interrogative, may, which expects a negative answer. What he says is, this is a statement. He's saying, look, no, you don't fast, but instead you feast in celebration. The image of a wedding feast was used throughout Scripture of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. And and what Jesus says is, I'm here. This is a time of feasting. This is a time of celebration for those who will come to me. He says, now there is a time coming when there will be fasting. There will be mourning. He says, there's a time coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And this is referring to his coming crucifixion. And it would be a sad time. It would be a time where the disciples were scared and fearful and mourning that Jesus had died. That he had been brutally beaten and crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. And they thought, what happened? We thought he was the one. And then Jesus showed he was the one. As he came out of the tomb three days later in victorious resurrection, showing he had conquered sin and death, that he was the promised Messiah, the one who came to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And what he says to the Pharisees of that day is, 
This is a time for, for feasting, not fasting. There's a right time for that, just as there is a right time for the old as well as the new. And this is what Jesus illustrates with these two parables, these word pictures, in verses 36 through 39. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will t both tear the new and the old, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined as well. You know, nowadays, people get a new pair of jeans, and they cut them up. Have you noticed that? You know, they get this brand new pair of jeans and they start ripping holes and making these razor cuts. And, you know, when I was growing up, if you had holes in your jeans, you patched them. And, and you know, if you were one of those people who ever patched your jeans, you knew that you either used a pre-shrunk type of patch or material because if you put new uh, denim on old denim that had already shrunk up and had been worn in, what would happen? The first time you washed it, that new piece would start to shrink and it would tear away and rip the seams and the hole would get worse. Jesus, when he tells parables, uses things people know. In that day, clothing was extremely valuable. People typically only had one piece. And so when something was torn or, or ripped, they fixed it. And, and so he takes something that everybody knows and he says, look, here, here's something that will illustrate what I want you to understand. He said the same thing in regard to wine. You know, today they ferment wine in, in you know, vats and barrels and different things. But in that day, they used wineskins. Now, what they would do is they would, they would take a skin of an animal and they would treat it. They would uh, tan it and, 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 and prepare it. Maybe you're thinking, as you read this parable, of maybe a little flask type of skin. But what people did in that day is they would take an entire animal skin and they would prepare it. And, and after it was ready, they would fill it with wine. And the next spout there, where the neck of the animal had been, would be the spout. And as you put wine into this, and it began to ferment, it produces a gas and it expands and it does things. And if it was in an old, previously used skin, something that had grown brittle, what would happen is, is as fermented as it began to, to grow from the inside out, you could, you could split that thing and all the wine would be lost and the skin itself would be ruined as well. In terms of these parables, what Jesus wants these religious leaders to understand is he didn't come to patch up Judaism. Remember, they were the ones who were promoting the law as the way home to God. They were the ones who were saying, this is the way that you need to do things, and they were adding in their own stuff on top of it. If God said fasting one day was good, well, then twice a week was better. If God said to do this, then you did that, and they were constantly adding on to the law the works that were required. But what Jesus said is, uh, it is not a works-based system of law or the rituals or being religious that gets you to God. It's about a relationship. It's about a relationship with me, the promised Messiah, the one who came to, to pay the penalty of death that the law says, the, the book of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. But those were imperfect sacrifices that were temporary coverings. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the perfect and permanent Passover Lamb. And he said, I have come to fulfill the law. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 tells us, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, Jesus is not condemning or dismissing the Old Testament. The scriptures came as, tell us Jesus came not to abolish or destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He paid the penalty of death that was owed. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is his blood that has washed away our sins. And as you think of this image of, of garments that have been patched, the scriptures tell us when we get home to heaven, we are given a robe of righteousness, a new garment to match our new position in Christ. Instead of trusting Jesus Christ alone, there are many in our world who have this patchwork of religion. And they say, I'm going to add this in and, add, and do this and bring these things together. And what God says is, there is just one way home to heaven. And that is through my son, Jesus alone. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's not through our works. It's not through going to church. It's not through being good or doing all these things that we get to God. It's through what God did for us when he came and he took our place on the cross. It's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It is grace, not the law that saves us. Now, once we are saved, we are to live in a way that reflects that new life. God doesn't want us hanging on to the old garments of our sinful life. I wish we had the time to go through Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. And it, you, when you go home today, you can read through those passages. And you'll see there, it tells us to take off the old way of doing things and to put on the new way of doing things in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. We take off the old garments of our past and we put on the new garment of Christ as we change the way we live. In the first parable, there's a picture of things on the outside, and in the second, there is a picture of things on the inside. Something new was getting poured into the container, our bodies, these earthly containers. As New Testament Christians, we're told that when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and seals us. We have God resident within us as believers. Even in the Old Testament, God was pointing ahead to the coming of the New Testament covenant. He said to the, the people in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, and I will give them one heart and put in a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. You can read Jeremiah 31 and you see in there the same language that speaks of the coming of the new covenant and the change of the heart within us through the promised Messiah. God changes us on the inside. He fills us with new things, and he wants our life to reflect that externally as well. What God says is every heart needs a personal relationship with me. What the world tells us is if you feel empty inside, we'll fill it with stuff. More toys, more tech, a new house, a new car, you know, new relationship, whatever it is that will fill that hole in your life. But what God tells us is there's only one way to fill your life. The emptiness you feel inside can be filled by a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus concludes here in verse 39 by saying, And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, The old is good enough. You see, what had happened is the religious leaders of the day had become so comfortable keeping their traditions. They said, We have a way of doing things. 
And as they were doing their traditions and their rules and their rituals, they forgot what they were all about, that they were to point people to God. Israel was told numerous times that they were chosen as God's people to be a light to the nations. And they kept forgetting why, why God had them doing the things that they were doing, which was to point people to him. The people of Israel and the religious leaders specifically were not to be gatekeepers of an exclusive club. Rather, their role was to help people to come to know God, to love him, to follow him. And as we look at this parable, a point of application we can draw from it is the need for new wineskins in our day as well. For us to understand that we are to take a never-changing message to an ever-changing world. We are to take a never-changing message of the Word of God to the world that needs to know about God and His love. We need to, as a church, be those who are willing to look at the current culture and context around us and say, are there things that we need to do that are new and different? I'm not talking about compromising the message of the gospel. I'm talking about contemporizing it. We see Paul talking about this in 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22, the apostle Paul said, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though as not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. You see, the message stays the same. But the methods needs to change. We don't put new wine into old wineskins and wonder why, why do they burst? Why are they not able uh, to grow and, 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 and meet the needs? Now, that doesn't mean we need to change everything. We need to remember that there are reasons we do church the way we do. But when we get so set on past traditions or ways of doing things, what we need to remember is those traditions were new at some point in time, weren't they? The traditions that we base uh, our, our preferences on were brand new at some point in time, and they were done to meet the culture and the context of the day. Can I confess something to you? I have personal preferences in the way we do church. There are things that I like. I wish things were certain ways. And you may say, well, you're the pastor, Roger. Can't you do it? No, I don't always get to do things my way all the time. I love Wayside. I love the way we do things. But I'll confess to you, there are times that I am stretched. There are new things that we have to do. There are new ways that we have to reach the culture. We have to, when you look at Wayside, it is an amazing church because we have a diversity of background here. Do you realize that we have about four to five generations of people in Wayside Chapel? In the next service, we're going to be dedicating four more babies. You know, we have a, a number of growing young families. We're about to launch another new Marrieds ABF. Since I've come to Wayside, we've launched, this will be the third new and newly Marrieds ABF that we launch because God is bringing so many young families into our church. And the, the, the culture and the context and the way that they do things are different than the way that we do things. And I know there are young people in this service, and there are 90-plus-year-olds in our second service. But I want to thank those of you in this service. 
Because as I remind the younger folks in our church all the time, we are standing on the shoulders of the older uh, founding parts of Wayside Chapel. And many of you understand new wine and, and new wineskins. We're called Wayside Chapel because we used to be on Wayside and Vance Jackson. You made a master move to this location. That was a huge paradigm shift. The way that we do things today is completely different than the way we did things uh, 54 years ago when Wayside Chapel began. There have been a lot of changes over the years. The average lifespan of a church is 30 to 35 years. It is either dead or dying at that point. Wayside Chapel is 54 years old in July. And, and we are growing. And we are continuing to reach out and impact this community and the world for Christ because this is a church with both old and young people who are willing to do things differently, that are willing to say, you know, this may not be the way I like doing things completely, but we're going to stretch. Now, we don't compromise the message of the gospel, but what we do is we say we're going to contemporize it. We're going to make changes. We're going to do things when we have to in order to reach others. Jesus said, it's, it's not the healthy that need, need a physician. We're all sick people. But the people that are out there that are lost, that are coming in. Last Sunday, I sat on the back row. It's kind of fun to be back there instead of up here some weeks to kind of see what's going on. And it was fun for me. I was sitting right next to Steve Troxell, our pastor of 34 years. And to listen to Steve talking, well, who are all these people? I don't know. He was in the 11 o'clock service. I don't know anybody here. Who's that? Oh, and I said, well, that, you know, that person, this one young woman came up and gave me a hug, and she said, thank you so much. And, and she walked away. She was a young African-American lady, and Steve goes, who's that? And I said, she came to know the Lord here six months ago right up front, and her life has changed because of it. And then another guy walked by. He was ushering, and, and Steve said, who's that? I said, oh, well, that's so-and-so. And, -so. and he, he came to know the Lord four years ago here. And then somebody else came by that had just come to Christ two years ago. You know, they're not all brand-new believers, but it was fun to just sit there and go, yeah, that's a new Christian, that's a new Christian, that's a new Christian. And to see what God is doing here at Wayside. And to see the life change and to know what is God is doing. And it is because of the faithfulness of the past of this generation. And the generation before and what God is doing. And so we have to, we have to look to the future. I'm not standing up here today and you're thinking, okay, what's Roger going to change? You know, this is a sermon set up to tell us everything's changing. No, we're not changing a lot of things. There are changes coming in the new year. You know, change is inevitable, and change is hard. Mark Twain once said, the only one who likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. <laughs> you know, none of us like change, but there are changes that are coming. I mean, some of them are things that we, we're going to see that are real visible. We're in the final stages of approval with the city of Castle Hills and the parking lot expansion. So, we're, yeah, praise God. And so we're going to be uh, working on expanding the parking lot out there. It's not going to be as disruptive as the first time when we had to tear all this up. We're going to be adding additional parking along the alley and back around here. But that's a change. Uh, there are going to be things you're not going to see so much. We have to work on the roof again up here. We have these large flat areas and they're holding water and it's, it's an issue. And so you're not going to see that. Uh, but if we don't fix it, you'll see it. As things come in through here, that's a change that's coming. There, there are changes that if you use the website that you're going to notice. Uh, we talk about the, the new wine and the old wineskins. You know, in 1983, I had a computer science minor, and I was learning to program computers using punch cards. Anybody here remember that? Yeah. So 
they don't do computers that way anymore, do they? And so the website that we designed and, and launched seven years ago is, is not capable of keeping up with all the new smart pads and phones and other things. So we've got to change the formatting and the structure and everything of the website. We were going to have that rolled out at the beginning of the year. Uh, you can pray for Susan Cottingham, our communications director. She was in a car accident and broke her wrist. So we've had to delay the launch of that. It's kind of hard to type with a broken wrist. And, but that's going to be coming. And there are other things that you'll see that are, that are more apparent. There are some staffing changes coming in the new year. Uh, Don Yates, who was on the video for the Men's Summit, he's, uh, next week he's going to be up in the Chicago area candidating at a church where they are looking at him as the senior pastor of their church. You know, he's a gifted guy. And uh, two years ago we launched Dickey to Houston to pastor a church there. I mean, this is part of what God does. And so you can pray for the Yates family for wisdom as they are looking at that church and whether that's the right fit for their family and then pray for the search that's underway for us now to replace Don in that area. And that may bring about some new shifts as we look at how to better uh, spread around responsibilities and, and some of the things that are coming at Wayside here. Uh, our facilities director, Kevin Clifton, some of you know him. You know his wife, Angie Clifton. She's one of the administrative assistants here. They are currently raising support to go to Chiang, Man, Chiang Mai, Thailand to be missionaries. And so they'll be leaving us when they raise support. Well, a few years before, Darren Dunn, some of you remember Darren. Uh, he, was in, he was our tech guy. He's over there in Chiang Mai. So there is change that is coming as God is doing new things. And, and each of those things will bring about uh, change, good change in some cases, but it's still change. And like Mark Twain said, only a baby with a wet diaper likes that change. So those are some things that are coming uh, ahead in the, in the year ahead. When we think about Wayside, we're called to help change lives with the never-changing message of the gospel. You know, our God is a God of new beginnings. He loves doing new things. And at Wayside, we need to remember why we're here, which is to share with the lost sinners how they can be saved and to equip those who are God's people, the saints, to do the works of service, to grow in their walk with God and to teach others to love God more fully. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had forgot why they were there. As we think about this new year, I want to remind you that God is about new beginnings not just in terms of our calendars, but in terms of our lives and the things to come. God says in Isaiah 43, verses 18 through 19, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. For those of us who have turned from our sins into Jesus Christ to be our Savior, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And as this new year begins, we're given the opportunity for a new start with God. In Revelation 21, verses 5 through 6, he says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water... I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Jesus Christ paid the cost at the cross. He paid the penalty of death for our sins 
so that we might have that new life with him. If you're here today and you've never come to Jesus to be your Savior, I invite you today to turn to him, to accept his great gift of new life, to say to him, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I believe you took my place, you paid my penalty, and today, God, I give you my life. And for the rest of us who already know the Lord of life, God calls on us to go into the world and to share the good news, to remember why Wayside Chapel is here, to be a lighthouse to this community and the world beyond. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you, Father, for all that you've blessed us with as individuals and as a church. I thank you, Father, for 54 years of faithfulness, of seeing the gospel go out into this community and beyond to the world. And Lord Jesus, if you tarry for another 54 years, things will have to change in the way that we do church. We don't ever want to move away from teaching the message the way that you've presented it. Father, we don't want to be politically correct. We want to be biblically correct. But we pray, Father, that you would give to us great wisdom to know how to engage the culture and the context in which we live, the way things are changing. I thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of those in the past, the men and women who have been a part of Wayside, the leaders like Stephen Connie that led this church and for the ones before. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful until the day that you call us home, whether it's at our death or the rapture. We pray, Father, that this would be a church that would stand firm for the truth. Send us out now, Lord, into the world to be your witnesses. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.